Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the broadcaster, producer and journalist Simon London. Simon has been a good mate of mine since I started working in the media in the late 90s. We've always made each other laugh a lot and I've tried to work with him whenever I can. He's built an extremely successful career across the media against the odds. He was an orphan who spent his early years in a children's home. But he went on to become a top Fleet Street journalist, then an award-winning television producer and an in-demand creative executive. Back in the 90s when he started out, black faces in the media were even rarer than they are today. So it can't have been easy to work his way up in an industry that can be brutal even when you're not part of a minority. To be honest, this was something I've never discussed with Simon in much detail, despite having known him for so long. This was also the first time I heard the full story of his acrimonious departure from the BBC a decade ago, which led him to the verge of a nervous breakdown. It was a pleasure and a privilege to get into this stuff with a man I value as a mate and admire as a colleague. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Simon, welcome to The Reset. Thanks very much, Sam. Good to see you. It's great to have you, mate. Okay, so I want to talk about work. We've worked with each other for decades on and off, Simon. And um, like me, you spent a lot of your career freelance, um, you know, on and off. And you've had all the fun, but all of the stresses that go hand in hand with that. And I want to talk about some of those uh, the, the moments that have been tough on your mental health, because one thing I've never addressed squarely on this show is the central role that our working lives play in all of our mental health. I mean, certainly it's been the trigger for me in any very tough times I've had in my life. Work has always been at the centre of it. Um, first of all, I'm just interested to to know, and I've never really discussed it at length for you, it's like when you first came into the media, which I'm guessing was like the 90s, mid-90s, yeah. then even more than now, though it's still probably the case now, as a black man, I guess you found yourself as well, the, the only person of colour in a lot of work environments in the media at that time? Yeah, very often. Um, I 
entered the media really through writing. I worked for a little company that wrote listings for Murdoch newspapers and magazines. It was called Murdoch Magazines. And we then uh, wrote for The Sun, The Times, News of the World, and you'd work on a different paper every week. So mm. you'd write long listings for the broadsheets, pithier listings for uh, the tabloids. And Calvin McKenzie, on one week then I was writing the Sun listings, saw the listings I was writing and invited me down to uh, work and try out as TV reviewer for the Sun. Um, wow. I didn't get that job, but he did give me some shifts down there. So I did some shifts down at the Sun and that in turn led to me working at Today newspaper where... The TV critic there, Pam Francis, when she went on holiday, asked me to cover for her, uh, which was amazing. And from there, I ended up as TV critic uh, on the Daily Mirror doing a, a, a column. And I have to say, working on newspapers, even back then, although kind of that's when the tabloids, arguably 80s and 90s were at their height, just everybody was just so nice. And you really it was really all about could you do the job and were you talented and less about, you know, did you look the part or who was your dad? So you felt it was a, a, a meritocracy? Much more so, yes, than uh, when I moved to television. And I moved to television because the Daily Mirror brought in a new TV critic. I was given the Junior Mirror to edit, which was great. But then they set up a, their own cable channel. And I, I, I believe it was you who once said that in the 90s, at some point, everybody was a presenter. And that was my... <laughs> <laughs> that was my turn. So I, I went to live TV uh, as a presenter when it was under Janet Street Porter and then uh, Kelvin McKenzie again. He's been my boss about three times. And I, I became a presenter at live TV and moved across then to uh, eventually presenting and producing and finally just producing. So I was a freelance producer for sort of 20, 25 years. And um, so, you know, I, I, you talk about Kelvin McKenzie and, you know, my main thoughts, I've, I've crossed paths with him a couple of times, but my main knowledge of Kelvin McKenzie is reading stuff like Stick Out Your Punter, one of the classic media tomes, which probably covers some of the time you were, you were in, you know, working in his empire. And it does paint a picture, although it's a funny book, it paints a picture of extremely brutal environment that by today's standards, where we're all so conscious of, you know, microaggressions at work let alone the macroaggressions that <laughs> seem to go on it there I mean you know but you you obviously didn't experience it in that sense because I always thought oh my god not I've never worked in a in a tabloid newsroom but I've worked with a lot of people who have and I've heard some horror stories but that wasn't your experience no wasn't my experience I did see I did see stuff that um I <laughs> I saw some macroaggressions definitely <laughs> but it really was, if you were good enough, if you were throwing up ideas, if you were keen and enthusiastic, and if you delivered, mm. you you could thrive in that environment. And another saying I've heard, my good friend Georgie, who I worked with on the Graham Norton show when we were on the production team there, used to say, if you can't see the pigeon, you are the pigeon. And I was never, ever the pigeon on, on newspapers. So I sort of enjoyed it. I made some really good friends, people I'm still in touch with now. Yeah, there was a fair amount of bullying that went on that was what people I'm sure would call a toxic environment. But it's very difficult to be, you know, I can look back and think that probably wasn't the right way to behave. But from my own personal experience, I, I, I had a great time. I enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I learned a lot. 
and go back to my original question i mean was was you know if you were in a in a sort of very small minority in uh, as a person of color in that environment how much of a, an issue was that for you i mean it's always been obviously i'm sort of what uh my friends sometimes call me the day walker because obviously i'm adopted by white parents mm. um i went uh i spent the first eight years of my life in in a children's home but then i was adopted by white parents who were uh, quite well off and then i went to a boarding school and then i came out and i had a lot of white friends um actually my wife's married my wife's married my wife's married to me my wife's white and my son's mixed race so I have more white friends than I do black friends. And so I've been able to, you know, sometimes when people are being crass and uh, insulting, they'll say, well, you're not really black. And I like to remind them that um, I'm still lucky enough to be one of those white people who suffers racism. So, uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am black. Um, but I've... I know that it's been easier for me with a with a name like Simon London and not Tunde and Beckway that mm. before you know it, I'm in the room or I'm on the phone and you don't know who or what I am until I'm there. Yeah. Um, so I know that that has been lucky and that has opened some doors for me. Um, but also it just means that, you know, like most black people, I would say back then and still now, I just knew that I had to work harder, try and be better and not give anybody the opportunity to um, get, to have an to have an opportunity to get rid of me. Mm. And you know that ties into what you know people refer to nowadays as grind culture, yeah. and the sort of you know sense that working environments uh, you know that, that are structured around exploitation, particularly of, of junior staff. From what you're saying, uh, you know, as as a black man, you felt that was compounded. For, for you but you know young people nowadays are more aware of it and the fact that we even have a phrase growing culture makes people aware of the fact that a lot of organizations and the media is a hotbed of this as you and I both know yeah and, and frankly I've been on both sides of it so you know I hold my hands up because I've been I remember having to work probably to an unreasonable extent when I was younger but I've also probably as a boss made other people do just the same, you know, uh, what do you, what did, what did you think of that in terms of like, you know, your mental health and, and stuff, you know, that, that kind of idea when we were work, when we were first working in the nineties and the early noughties, uh, it was just sort of like you were, you, it was just taken for granted that you would just work 24, seven, 365 days a year. And if you showed any indication that you weren't willing to do so, you'd almost be more marked out as a, as difficult or an oddball. Yeah. I mean, the people who couldn't work hard and also play hard as well. Mm. Remember there was that sort of, you know, the sense of camaraderie was being able to stay up late, dabble in drugs, get drunk, misbehave and generally be one of the gang. You were kind of seen as sort of the outsider weak or yeah. um, just not a lot of fun. So it was sort of burnt into the culture and we didn't really, I don't think we realised it was the culture until we moved out of it. I, um, at 30, when I got married and then became a dad, you suddenly realised that you were working really hard. There's strains on your relationship, strains on, um, on being a parent. You weren't really ready to be a parent whilst you're still 
trying to keep up with everybody mm. else and and work that hard. And that was probably really the first inkling that um, maybe this isn't a healthy way to work. Mm. And people talk about the gig economy, places like Deliveroo and Uber and how the the employees are treated. But if you were a runner or if you were a mm. junior in the media in the 90s, you know, that was the that was the gig economy writ large. Yeah. You, know, you didn't, if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. Um, and you, you know, you're expected, there wasn't, there wasn't any such thing as overtime. You know, you could be in an edit till four in the morning. You could be on a shoot till two in the morning. It was only really when runners started falling asleep at the wheel and driving into walls and trees that mm. there was sort of a bit of a, Oh, we should have a look at, <laughs> we should have a look at this, yeah. but not a lot really changed and i think it's only just changing now yeah because people would think of it as a physical thing no one would ever talk about the the mental or emotional impact that that had and it and it and it must have had it on i mean i saw a couple of people fall by the wayside who if i'm honest at the time it was sort of almost whispered about in kind of gossipy terms oh i think he's taken a turn for the worse right and it's like oh he couldn't cope and that was the way we talked about whereas i i feel that now when things like that happen everyone is much more sort of willing to be sympathetic and compassionate because we all sort of think they're for the grace of God. But I remember in my early jobs on magazines, you know, people kind of just falling by the wayside because it all got, it was too overwhelming, you know? Yeah. And, and, and we would, and we would react in a pretty harsh, you know, in a pretty harsh way, but that was just the culture. Definitely, definitely, you're completely unsympathetic. And I kind of, when I look back and think of the sort of the things that I really regret, it was sort of, you know, going on holiday and because you're a freelancer, you're thinking I'm not working this week and every time my kid wants an ice cream, that's money I'm not yeah. earning. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so you're yeah. sort, sort of starting to penny pinch left, right and centre. Yeah. And in the end, my wife just said, listen, I'm booking all inclusives from now on. Yes. And we're going to go and we're going to stay at these places that you probably wouldn't want to go normally, Simon. You probably want to go. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, we're going to go and stay at these so that you just don't feel that we're hemorrhaging money every time that we yeah. go somewhere. And that was really to kind of keep the peace in a relationship because yeah. the just we have what's called the freelancers fear. You finish a contract and then you think, right, that's it. I'm never going to work again. I mean, some, some people say in TV, you're only as good as your last show. But I think for a lot of people, some people felt you're not even you're not even that good. You know, mm. you could be you could make a show and then be forgotten two weeks later. And where are you going to get that next job? So it was really difficult. You didn't want to be sick because you're not going to get paid. You didn't want to go on holiday because you didn't want to get paid. And you wanted to be nice to everybody, because mm. when that show finishes and everybody goes their separate ways, they're going to be in an office going, Simon's a good bloke or Simon's not a good bloke. And mm. that was going to stop you from getting or help you get the next job. And so you have to do a lot of networking around it as well. So, you know, if there's a birthday party or a Christmas party or a leaving do, you know, you've got to make sure that you were out and about and seen so that the last person you spoke to, if somebody said, oh, we're looking for a producer to do X, Y, and Z, they might just say, oh, I saw Simon the other day and he's not, he's just finishing Mm -hmm. up on a contract. Um, So yeah, it, it was, it was a job that you, you lived and breathed and added on to that being kind of, as you say, the only black guy in the room back then and still, still now, 
you know, as a black person, you knew that you had to, you had to work harder. You had to try harder. You had a certain set of things going against you um, that you needed to combat. And you could only do that by being as enthusiastic and uh, a bit of a clown, making people laugh, getting on with people and working as hard as you could. Mm. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You're also, mate, uh, having known you for uh, so many years, you know, you are an extremely energetic person. Like, you know, you're always energised. You're always, you always uh, appear to be, you know, up in a good mood. Um, do you, I suppose you're the sort of person, I think, do you relax much? Are you, because some people really struggle to relax. And I wonder whether you relax much because you're always busy. You're always energised. You're always a lot of fun. So it's not a criticism, but... <laughs> But it is something that I think, you know, because I know, I mean, I try, I've worked very hard in recent years to try and focus more on relaxing, on almost teaching myself to be a bit lazy. For all the reasons that you just described, all of those feelings you described so well, you know, that I've had as a, as a sort of a long-term freelancer myself, the highs and lows, even when you start a job, you're very often after the first week already nervous about even if the end of the contract's three months off you're still nervous about that straight away so you're never relaxed it's really difficult but I'm also probably like you not particularly built for a kind of a a, a proper nailed down job with a boss that you go into permanently because that has its its effects on your job so it's really really and and as a result you know of of that sort of constant fear and anxiety I sort of was you know, I, I've always been very kind of energised, but really it was just quite, I'm quite manic. Do you know what I mean? And I've had to work hard on not being that way because it just became part of my personality full time. Holidays were a nightmare for my wife. And, you know, probably when the kids came along at first, I was a bit too restless. I'd always have my laptop on holiday with me. I almost prided myself on, on it for a while. You know, there were years where I kind of prided myself on the fact that I was the kind of guy who's checking my phone and laptop whilst on holiday because, you know, I don't know, maybe it made me feel like I was important or in demand. But I look back and I think, no, it actually meant I was like manic. So anyway, I know all the feelings that you are describing. But um, my question is, do you rela- are you able to relax much? Um, I think my idea of relaxation, and I completely and utterly identify with absolutely everything you said to the point where, you know, we wouldn't be able to go away unless there was definitely going to be Wi-Fi in the hotels because Simon would need to go inside and sit on his computer for a bit or just want to check that, Mm. you know, the the phone. In the last two, three years, I'm really trying to train myself to say no to stuff and Mm. I don't have to do everything. But no, I, I think that, I think it was a, a, a form of mania um and to relax i did things that kept me busy so i've run a pub quiz for 10 yeah. years which is not really relaxing you've got to write the questions again when you do the pub quiz you're performing and you're up mm. and i think in a way you know i know you've got your football which is your form of relaxation mm. but mm. again it's a massive exertion yeah. of energy quite intense as, as well yeah. you know there's not there, there wasn't really there's never really been going to the library and reading a book or, mm. um, you know, rambling or, or whatever. Every so often, my my mum and dad, um, now just my dad, do live down in Dorset. And sometimes I could just go for a walk. Mm. But even even on a walk, I've still got my phone in my pocket. The idea yeah. of just leaving my phone at home uh, didn't is, is not something that is not something that I've 
I've been able to do. I think I'm getting better at that. Do you now. aspire to it though? Now, I mean, now, like, do you look? Do you think I would like to get to the point where I'm able to just, you know, while away an afternoon, sat on my ass eating a bag of crisps and watching? Well, you do like watching films. I yeah. mean, that you've got. A, you're not one of these guys who's on your on Twitter all the way through a movie, are you? Because I know you're no. a massive film fanatic. So that that actually, I mean, in all seriousness, that is something. You could sit down in, in front of a three-hour movie and that you switch your brain off, right? Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. And that's that's pretty good. And, um, you know, I, as soon as he could sit up, I started taking my son to the cinema and right. would force him to sit through films that were far too long for him. <laughs> so now he can join me sitting a film, watching a film and we, we can do that, which is good. I think, again, it's that freelancer sphere that I talked about earlier. I, When you're a freelancer, you tend to be always the new person in the job or the job yeah. is always new so therefore even if you joined an organization and they say they like you and they want to make you staff you're the newest person there so that means that you will be the the first person to leave when they start sort of cutting back mm. and also as a freelancer when you're not sure when your contract's going to end every call could be that call that might be a year or an 18 month contract. They don't come up very often, yeah. but they do. And you don't want to be the person who misses that because you were being, um, being a sissy and relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> so ah, the, I've heard a rumor going around that you're one, you're, you've become a relaxer. <laughs> There's a vicious rumor going, going around that you've become one of these relaxer type people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not me. I yeah. don't relax. <laughs> like a form of McCarthyism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's it's tough, and it, it it really has been the it really has been the the organisation. I mean, I said, uh, and I told you this. Um, I was being interviewed by Gabby, and she was asking me people who had inspired me, and I was talking about you and saying that. I'm convinced that if you had more of an Oxbridge accent, that you would have been um, channel controllers. When I look at the people who have been channel controllers in TV or look at the people who've been editors of, of big channels or big newspapers, mm. and they've been in a job where they've stayed for a minimum of five to 10 years, mm. if your face fits and your voice fits and you're the right sort of person, that's what, that is what's out there. And I've, kind of always aspired to get that really good job though I've had a lot of jobs and I've enjoyed and I've met a lot of people and I've joined uh, and I've enjoyed where I've worked through that just the way that the media has been over the last 20 30 years that's been something that I've not been able to um that I've not been able to get and I was always looking for that I was always hoping that phone call would come through well, you did have a, um, a spell in a sort of a, a, you know, what you might call a, a proper job um, at the BBC, but that led to one of the sort of um, ultimately one of the, the sort of worst moments for you personally in terms of your mental health and stuff. T tell us what happened during that period in your life. Yeah, I mean, I'd worked at the BBC before, kind of at the uh, sort of around about 97, 98 in the entertainment department. I'd been both... Uh, a presenter, uh, sort of a reporter on the lottery show. And I was also a producer on the lottery show. And when the lottery show went midweek, I was made a producer of that. Obviously, it being the BBC, I was still paid as an assistant producer. And they were quite happy to let me produce it, gallery produce it, live produce it, you know, in my mm. 20s, running a live gallery at the BBC and also appearing on screen. But 
I was so pleased to be there and I didn't have anybody <laughs> looking out for me or representing me in that way. Yeah. That I was just sort of, yeah, I'll do this for pennies and um just seeing my name on the end of the credits was was enough really and it would have been good to have somebody looking out for me at that time but I'd always wanted I'd done I'd pretty much made every sort of tv that I wanted to do I'd done live television as a presenter and as a producer I'd done chat shows I'd done panel shows um but I hadn't done uh, I hadn't done scripted comedy. So I wanted to do scripted comedy. There was a chance to go in at the BBC and work there. So I went back into the comedy department and I did some development. That development led to um, making some shows. And so I did some pilots that became shows. Um, the most famous one possibly being Stephen K. Amos, where the controller of BBC Two mistook me for Stephen K. Amos when I went in there. But that's a different story. And we'll <laughs> it's come a great that. story, but I'd like to <laughs> devote a whole episode or something to that one day. Um, and then whilst I was there, there was the opportunity to apply for the head of creative head of comedy. Um, and I just sort of at that age, the late 40s, mid to late 40s, I just wanted to get out of sitting in an edit suite till two in the morning and actually be on the path to being a proper exec with mm. maybe that would lead to, you know, maybe being a channel controller further down the line or doing something like that. So I took that, I took on that job, um, but it was possibly just a, a job too far. I think I was working at the BBC when I had all those years been working outside the BBC at independents, which are ferociously commercially minded. Mm. And the BBC still at that time, kind of around sort of 2008 to 2015, I reckon, was still a place where you could go. I mean, when I got to the comedy department, one of the reasons I was given a show to do is because everybody else who worked in that comedy department when they were asked to produce this sitcom said, no, they didn't want to do it. Uh, can, can you imagine that in your own company if you if you had people on the books and you went oh can you do this job and they went oh I don't really nah. don't really like that I don't want to do that and yeah and then they just go over to Westfield and shop for the afternoon and so yeah yeah so I was like yeah no I'll do that I'm happy to do that I know it's um not a show that's well thought of but I'm happy to do that blah blah, blah. so I thought I'd really um. I kind of paid my dues. I'd produced a lot of TV. Um, I'd worked in development and all the rest of it. But going in a creative head of comedy just really opened my eyes to that was a world that just I wasn't supposed to be in. And it didn't matter how enthusiastic or how hard I tried to make it work. It just wasn't working for me. And I'm not used to failing in so many departments you know if I can't do a job there at least I'll be friendly with people and my sense of humor and my personality but Mm. I just was in the wrong place with the wrong people who didn't need you couldn't they couldn't be wooed and they Mm. didn't need to be won over Mm. because whatever happened they were always going to be in a job yeah and that's a very difficult that's fascinating uh, going back to what you said earlier and that feeling where first of all the fact that for for, you know just for the color of your skin you feel like you're having to work doubly hard but also that mentality that you that you spoke about you know that i'm familiar with of kind of make sure everyone likes you because that's how you get a job and then you encounter some people a dark and mysterious world of people who just have no inclination or requirement to behave in that way 
because yeah. they think their path is secured, whatever. So why make the effort? I know. And it's and it was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. I mean, I know there's I know that there's sort of stuff going on at the BBC uh, and I'm convinced there'll be a massive me too and a massive kind of mm. revelation going on about sort of different departments and what was going on at the different departments that I know that that is going on all the time behind the scenes mm. and there will be stories that come out but for me I really was amazed at you know I work with a kid who's um dad worked there as a his dad worked there as a script editor and everything else and he was turning down he'd been sort of uh brought into the department he was turning down jobs that he wanted to do in the department uh, I think he was 20 years younger than me and then he was um being given shows to produce with I must have had about something like 10,000 hours of live television under my belt where mm. he maybe had 30 but given sitcoms to produce because he was the you know had the right surname and been Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. to the right place and was considered wow. he was being groomed for that's that's what that's what happened you know and um that was really really difficult i'd sit in meetings and you would hear i remember sitting in one meeting uh where i heard about a show that hadn't got into production that was three hundred thousand pounds in the red and asking why that was and just being told well it will be okay because we'll just be able to take money from another fund and um fund that and just saying you know in the commercial in an independent company you just couldn't mm. do this in an independent company you would be forced to make your company profitable <laughs> <laughs> and people just getting really really angry and peed off about uh, about stuff and it was um what about you piping up and saying that sort of stuff stuff like that stuff like that and it was the first time i'd really understood this idea that you know i'd heard it from a lot of black women sort of saying you know the angry black woman and all mm. of a sudden you know jolly simon london was the angry black guy i mean mm. <laughs> I, right. I was, yeah, so suddenly you start speaking up about things and you're immediately labeled difficult yes Yes, definitely. And watching money, you know, my mum and dad's money just kind of being poured down a drain and the way that the BBC dealt with talent and the way the department just had no, just run by people who weren't just, you know, everywhere you looked, everywhere you looked, you just saw just people who kind of if you threw them out in the outside world wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to cope at all mm. you know and mm. um to go from getting a job on a newspaper purely down to my writing and then 
being able to get a job as a presenter just down to my presenting and then mm. getting a job producing over here because of my ability to yeah. come up with ideas to then be sort of working in a, with people who kind of didn't have any of that but were were climbing and at the same time just feeling almost like like a foot on your on your head sort of pushing you down and not being able to get above sort of just drove me mad drove me uh, absolutely insane i i you know i should say at this point as well that like i i worked with you long before this period and worked with you in various capacities and you know you are well known in the media for being an an upbeat positive um and a you know nice person to work with and and i think you know right aside from your talent people often want to work with you because of your personality I also know that you're a pretty liberal bloke. So for anyone who doesn't know you, I don't want anyone to think here that this is like some sort of anti-BBC agenda. I would have wagered that you would have been the sort of guy who grew up loving the BBC and its output and defending it. This is not some sort of Daily Mail axe to grind. So if anything, you must have been surprised that the sort of worst stereotypes that would have been, you know, spread about by, you know, people like the male who have an agenda against the, the BBC... You must have been surprised to find out, oh, shit, that's actually true. It really is an old boys club. Yeah, I mean, I was really, I, you know, I still love the BBC. I, you know, I would defend the BBC I, when I still see people saying defund the BBC and I look at the the Blue Planet and I listen, see my dad watching Test Much Special and I see, you know, my son did bite size to help him through his university, to help him mm. through his exams and things like that. I love the BBC and I love what it what it produces. I was just... It would be quite bad if this interview gets out and it ultimately does defund the BBC. Though, so <laughs> you're you're going to have some explaining to do to your dad, that's for sure. <laughs> I, was just, I just could not get over and the more I tried and the harder it got and the more I was kind of, first of all, it sort of your silence, then you're not invited to meetings and then, oh, yeah. you know, slowly but surely you're told that your work is substandard and you're not, you're not doing well and it, things came to a head and I was, I was basically asked to leave and, um, you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't delivering in inverted commas in, in the department. So, that was the moment that, you know, I have my wife to thank for this. She just said, you know, go and get, go and get a lawyer, go and talk to a lawyer. Mm. So that's what, that's what I did. And um, I had to hand over all my emails and um, looked at my emails. And then, you know, the smoking gun for me was I'd done an appraisal um, with, uh, uh, with somebody and I'd spent, I'd spent so long filling in my half of it because it's the BBC and the targets and what I wanted to achieve and everything mm. else. And my lawyer went and got the uh, appraisal to see whether I'd managed to hit my targets. <laughs> and the, the other person hadn't filled it in. So I'd been sort of sat in a meeting and they'd just yeah. been basically looking at me going, I wonder when I could get rid of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on said, well, we're getting rid of him because he hasn't hit his targets. So my lawyer was very pleased to sort of say, well, you didn't give him any. And yeah. uh, <laughs> so, Amazing. But, so, but, so, but that was, what, what was it like for you personally during this period? Because like that is... They're the facts of what happened, yeah. right? But how did that affect you? You know, I, I don't, I can't remember seeing a lot of you around this time, but you're such an effervescent person. I mean, this must have, especially from what you're saying as well, 
it's the slow burn of this situation must have been particularly testing for you emotionally and mentally because it, it wasn't like an overnight kind of, right, you're fired. It was like a, a long, painful road where you were slowly kind of, I guess some people would call it gaslit, but certainly you were being, you know, slowly squeezed. Yeah, how, how did how did that change you and your behaviour and your mood and your personality? I, I became, you know, I've just awful, awful. It was all I could talk about when I wasn't in work. You know how how I was being, you know how I was being sidelined and what I was going to do. And but then I was working all hours I was sort of trying to get more scripts in from other people and read those and doing everything I could to try and have trying to have some success within that department mm. I was um uh, I know I was short with people abrupt with people horrible to people in terms of um you know I I kind of I've you sort of had this feeling of dead man walking and so that everybody's mm. against you I've never really been bullied in a job before and I look back at it and it's I guess it comes under that that umbrella, but you know when you when a department feels that they've made a mistake and sort of putting putting somebody in the wrong place, you can sort of try and either sideline them, but get to to get them out, which of course was never going to happen with me. I'm never going to give up, and mm. I'm never going to just stop 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 working. But I did become obsessive about um I did become obsessive about it and obsessive about other people and you know seeing other people being given projects that I thought belonged to me sometimes correctly sometimes incorrectly I did you know I wasn't at my best at the you know for at least for at least six months there and um yeah I needed to I needed to move on so that must have been just exhausting like emotionally exhausting the effect of sleep and that sort of stuff everything everything you know um you kind of uh, definitely couldn't sleep. Definitely affected my family. I was short with my family. I kind of um, would definitely take just having a shortness of temper and taking it out there. Also, just boring people. Anybody who would listen, I would sort of tell them, "This is going on. What should I do?" And asking for advice. And sort of a couple of people said, "Well, maybe you shouldn't talk about it so much and just get on with stuff." And yeah. that didn't that didn't really help. And I, it's really interesting. I'm going to digress just for a moment, but I found out that one year Serena Williams was the most tested athlete in sport and it was a year when she had a baby even and i now i'm not saying i'm serena williams sam you and i both know that but what i could understand is that if you have this drip 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 of people thinking that she is ultimately a cheat before she goes out on the court she has to she knows that everybody thinks that she's a cheat and she also has to mentally beat her opponent mentally Mm. and physically as well. So you've got this other layer to get through. Mm. And it was the first time in my life that I felt every time I got up in the morning, I've got to get through this layer that everybody thinks I'm rubbish and then go in and do my job and sort of still do it to the best of my abilities and still try and be successful and have little wins within myself. And that really ground me down. And when I read that about Serena Williams, I just had this massive... um, had this massive uh, sort of admiration for her and 
uh, I just really, really understood because I didn't. I've never, as you said at the beginning, I never understood the the phrase microaggressions. But to get through sort of these microaggressions every day, and also just seeing people behaving in a way that sort of if you were to write a book about it, people just would not believe what was going on. I mean, you can see it now because you look at the BBC iPlayer and you realise that that was out years before Netflix. And if somebody had come along with a commercial head and gone, you know something, why don't we say to everybody, you can have the iPlayer, but we'll put 50p on your license. Then the BBC wouldn't have lost any money or anything back then. But Mm. the idea that that a company as big as that doesn't have that commercial outlook, Mm. take it for something like that and then narrow it down to a whole load of people who for success in a commercial way isn't what they're thinking about now i know that you could say well it's about artistic success or whatever else but if you're working for a business the business has to succeed in in some ways you can't (laughs) it's not an art installation Mm. and so working with a lot of people who aren't driven by a commercial need for something to succeed means that you just have a lot of people who can coast and and nothing happens at all. Mm. So it's very difficult being surrounded by that sort of mindset. So when you were hitting your, your lowest point amidst all of this, and by the way, I want to say, because I think probably people will re, um, relate to this, is that when you say you couldn't stop talking about it, when I've been through similar crises in my life, that is my, I mean, not everyone reacts that way. Some people disappear into themselves, but I'm so conscious of the fact that when I've hit a crisis in my life, I have Tourette's about it and I become a nightmare for people to spend time with because it's all I can do is talk about that. There is no, it's an obsessive mindedness. So you, you latch onto it like a Rottweiler yeah. and, you, and you, you can't let go of it. And you can see those closest to you becoming frustrated, upset, certainly bored and exasperated. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you can't stop anyway. And it just makes the whole situation worse. You start to like hate yourself because of it, but you know, there's no way you can stop. So that's very familiar to me. What did you do? Was it, was it, were you close to breakdown? Did you go and see your GP? You know, did your wife intervene? What, what, what happened emotionally? Well, thankfully what happened is it came to a head when sort of, I was asked to leave and then I sort of got this lawyer and then we, um, uh, had discussions and thankfully it didn't, um, everything was able to be resolved amicably and kind of what you said earlier um i think that sort of there was some sort of compromise agreement or some possibly an nda where i wasn't allowed to talk about it but i'm talking about it with you now because ultimately i think those things are really really bad they stop people being able to you know certain things should be a compromise but there's a a huge campaign against them now funnily enough in television in particular that's that that started in the states and is now over here and i think you're right you know you know to be gagged when sort of um you've been treated incredibly badly and not to be able to tell people so that behavior can carry on and on and on is awful so once once um it had all been sorted out legally and everything else i was um Uh, then I was free to go off and do something else. And there was a chance at one point that I might go off and um, work for one of the um, digital channels. But instead I decided to go into, um, uh, go and work for a digital agency and sort of try my hand at sort of doing stuff online. And from out of that came my own uh, website, Kid Rated, which is my my website, TripAdvisor by Kids, um, which was great. But just as that was happening, I think, then I just felt incredibly low and I started to have panic attacks when 
I because I was still going out and meeting people because I had to go out to sort of see people about raising money and I had to go mm. out and talk to people about um, sort of having other work on the side whilst I was trying to build up this website. And I just had a fear, <laughs> me of all people, of going out and having to talk to people yeah, yeah and yeah. talking about my perceived failure. Mm. I just just the thought of going out and somebody saying, oh, how's it going at the BBC and having to go, oh, I'm not there anymore because I failed. Mm. Uh, and of course, nobody says that. I've never heard anybody. No. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that. Yeah. But that's how I thought that I was going to go out and, and yeah. talk. And so I just um, so I, I went to my doctor and talked about it with my doctor and um, I got some antidepressants and that helped. Mm. Um and also I started sleeping a lot, lot better afterwards, but it became, I couldn't watch any of the shows yeah. that had come out of our department and I couldn't really talk to anybody who had been in our department. If I was out and I saw somebody like that, I would d deliberately cross the, or duck into a shop or something. Mm -hmm. And I became, you know, a very different side of myself that took possibly about sort of a couple of years to um to come out the other side and even now uh, when i've had to ring people that i work with i've sort of ring them and say hey long time no speak by the way i have to say you know back when we were working together the last year of it was really mad so if i was a pain in the ass i'm really really sorry and i right. still feel the need to yeah. say that yeah 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 oh good again mate it's just that that i recognize so much what you're saying the fear of going out and speaking to people after you've been through a crisis like that i re i remember that really well i remember having to i remember going through a phase where i was cancelling meetings left right and center uh, i mean this happens this has happened in a, in a smaller way periodically to me you know i'm usually very outgoing i love going and talking to people but there have been times in my life where it's the most overwhelming thought in the world so I, you cancel last minute or sometimes i go along and i'm almost having to put on the performance of what people assume i am like but yeah, I was actually drenched in sweat because of the effort it took to pretend to be okay. And um, one of the wonderful things about having this conversation with you is that, you know, for years I wouldn't have said any of that stuff. You're obviously comfortable saying it now. So at least now we can sort of admit it. Whereas the worst thing for me, I was going through a crisis and other than perhaps my wife, I wouldn't have admitted these feelings or that level of stress to many people. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've not... This is really the first time I've spoken about it publicly we've spoken about it with friends just but i still don't think you know and it's 10 years it's it's 10 years and sort of talking about it now i can still feel that i can feel that my heart is quickened just mm -hmm. just slightly but it's um and then what what has been really difficult to see is that the changes that have come about and understanding what i went through and you know, hearing words like gaslight and understanding, and again, that phrase microaggressions mm. and sort of hearing words like safe space and all these, all these things that will be uh, dismissed as wokery, mm. you suddenly go, so that's what that was. Oh, yeah. so that's what I needed. Oh, so that's what should have happened. Um, and I just kind of feel... I feel more than anything when people say, God, sometimes you can kick off on Twitter or something like that. I feel more than anything that I will never let my son go through the same thing 
that mm. ultimately if I see something like that, I will speak out because, um, you know, he's doing incredibly well all by himself because he makes music, he puts it online, people like it, that's going well. And he doesn't have to rely like a lot of people did back 10 years ago and sort of that fact that their dad or their uncle or mm. they went to the same school or university as somebody to get a job. So when I see that um, it is a meritocracy that being able to do his own thing and be successful, when I see anything that comes in to try and stop that, I'm one of the first people up there yelling, no, you can't do that. You can't say that about people and you can't do that. And it's got to be fair and blah, blah, blah. Because I would hate him or anybody else to go through that that feeling. And and what was your what have you felt over the last couple of years since Black Lives Matter? Um, uh, you know, sort of became uh, such a big global movement, and the British media, particularly BBC, have had a a real issue with diversity for many years. And now there is a, you know, you'll have seen a rush, almost what felt like a panicked rush within the BBC and other institutions within the media, but BBC in particular, to sort of compensate. But it feels, you know, that that's only they've only been motivated to do so by the power of. The, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, yeah. in the light of the experience you've you've explained and to you 10 years ago, what's your perception been of the, the things that the BBC have been doing to try and improve the, you know, the optics with their diversity over the last couple of years? I think that uh, uh, Black Lives Matter was uh, amazing and I, I lost count of the amount of people who rang me, sort of good, some of them not good friends, actually, just people I knew who rang and said, look, if there's anything I can do uh, at the moment, I feel that I'm in a historical moment and um, I'm sorry if I wasn't, I'm sorry if, I, uh, if I've sort of taken mm. you for granted or is there anything that I can do to help? And I would say to them, seriously, you've always been one of the good ones. Don't, don't worry <laughs> about it. And yeah. that, was, that was really nice. Um, I... I it's it was difficult it was confusing because as i say i've always tried to get along on working hard and doing the best that i can and that generally has stood me in very good stead what i have found quite interesting is that there is not there has not been that investment in there's not been that investment in uh, people of color at the lowest level that there should be so that they get mm. what I would call the air miles. You can't just go in at the top and start making shows. You've got to be a runner or you've got to, you, you, you need lots. You've got to do your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Mm. And so I see some names. Um, I see some names that I think, have they made enough shows really to, to be where they are? And then I think to myself, well, they should just fake it till they make it. And it's good that they've got those people in. Um, and at the same time, I sort of, you know, there's a little bit of jealousy. I wish that sort of it had been happening. Yeah, it's hard not to feel jealous, actually. <laughs> so you asked me that question. How do I feel about Black Lives Matter? I feel jealous. I feel jealous that all these black people are doing so well. <laughs> Coming over here. I'll and... be honest. It's the worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> if I could turn back time, Sam. No, um, yeah, I feel a bit. I feel a bit jealous because I wish that I'd have. I wish that kind of with a combination of hard work and and a few tokenistic initiatives, mm. I too could have been at the top. No, well, that's no, why I, I asked if you felt cynical because you know you tried it the the sort of legit way and and worked hard and and 
created, you know, great things and, you know, developed your talent. Um, and actually, in the end, this is probably a completely leading question, but I suppose what I was getting at is, in the end, the only thing that activated the BBC to do what was right was fear, fear of their own reputation. Yeah, and actually, you can't... One of the things that I'm... that. I, I, you can't look back all the time. You've got to look forward. You've got to go on to the next thing. Mm. I'm just really glad that there are more people getting more chances. I'd like to see more people from socioeconomic backgrounds. It's funny, actually. I sort of think back more so now. I'm older to the kids that I was at school with when I was at my comp and the kids I was in the children's home with. Mm. And some of those kids were really clever and really funny. And I wish, mm. I sort of wish that they had the opportunities to go through um and experience what i have but know know that they probably wouldn't have been able to do that because it's been very much a class thing as much as it's been a color thing so at the moment i'm working for an american company i'm working for snap the parent company of snapchat and it's absolutely brilliant they've got diversity and uh baked all the way through the company and it's just so brilliant to kind of the, the conversations that they have and the way that they talk about commissioning and you know we'll sit on a conversation with people from india people from the middle east people from australia and they talk about all their programs like that it's just such a really really lovely beautiful thing that they can bring people from all over the globe to talk about what they like what they didn't like what would have worked culturally in their area and what and somewhere else. And I'm really, I really love that. And I hope in, I hope that over at the BBC that that happens. I want the BBC to thrive. I really, really hope it, it stays being successful, but I think that it's, um, it's had a tough job because it's moved so slowly. Mm -hmm. And it's probably too much of a big uh, final question, um, but fuck it. I'll ask it anyway. And if, and if it's too big, we'll do it. And at some other time, but, a phrase came back to me that you told me once when you were just briefly filling me in on what had gone down at the BBC. And, you you know, it went back to the fact that you'd spent those early years of your life in a children's home because you said someone had asked you in a meeting what you want out of this. And you said, listen, you need to understand, I spent the first eight years of my life in a children's home, so I know how to scrap. I'm not going to just give up and walk away from this. And I thought that that, that really struck me when you said that. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, that must have instilled you with a certain inner toughness. And is that something that, you know, has stood you well in these situations? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I I recognise that there is, I recognise that there is prejudice and discrimination and people are afraid about what they don't, what they know and what they don't know. And you can legislate for that as much as you want. But if we were you know if you see something that you don't understand or you've not been around you are going to be fear you're going to be fearful of it but at the same time you need to approach everything with some common sense uh we're talking in the week that will smith hit chris rock at the oscars and i see online and actually i think it was in the guardian a piece about how will smith hitting chris rock has become an issue of racism for the people who are talking about it and grow up it's not it's two it's two people who have behaved badly sorry one person really yeah. behaved badly at, at an event just like people do at weddings when the best man stands up and goes over and says a bit <laughs> yeah. too much it's and exactly then gets like clobbered that, yeah. later it just <laughs> happens you know stop trying to politicize 
everything, mm. but try and be fair in what you do and treat people well is uh, um, is what I would like <laughs> people yeah. to put up on their Twitter or Facebook pages with a picture of me. <laughs> mm. I once did try to spread a meme, which was just a picture of Buddha with the quote, don't be a cunt. <laughs> actually i'm not sure that was my meme i think i just saw it and liked it. it never really got the traction it deserved um but it's a beautiful manifesto simon and um i really it's been lovely talking to you and hearing this and i uh, you know and I'm, I'm aware that it's you know you haven't shared all of this um in such detail before so i'm i'm thankful and, and appreciative that you've done it here on the reset and um and thanks for your lovely words cheers sam all the best take care mate cheers mate There you go, Simon London. I think his warmth and charisma shine through in that chat. But what I certainly learned more about was the inner steel that's obviously helped him triumph against the odds so consistently throughout his impressive life. Work can be a bastard and one of the biggest triggers for our mental health problems. And men can often try to hide the pain that work pressure inflicts upon us. But people like Simon speaking up about it and being so honest can really help us all feel less alone and hopefully less ashamed. I hope you enjoyed listening to all of that. If you like The Reset, why not subscribe to the weekly newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com. And you can also give me a follow on Instagram if you fancy it at The Reset Sam. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.